Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Something exciting today, we're presenting today a live episode of the podcast Debunked. That podcast seeks to dispel harmful myths and stereotypes about people who use drugs, persons in recovery, and evidence-based harm reduction efforts. Today we're debunking the myth, Native Americans only live on reservations. And our guests include Sandy Sulzer, Director of the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement at Utah State University. Sandy Sulzer, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you being on uh, today. We also bring in Christina Groves, uh, who's with Ute and Hopi Tribes, and uh, is a therapist at uh, Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake. Christina Groves, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. And we bring in uh, podcast uh, host Don Lyons. Thank you. Hey, good morning, Tom. Good to be here. Good good to have you with us. Uh, so let me start with uh, Sandy Sulzer. Um, and I believe you have, you're also Assistant Professor of Health and Wellness, I understand, and you have an appointment with also Extension, USU Extension as well, as part of your, uh, your titles? Yes. Um, I'm an Assistant Professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Science in the College of Education and Human Services, and then I also uh, have an extension role within that, so uh, outreach in the community. I understand Debunked is a project of the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative in partnership with UX2 Extension. Uh, What is Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative? That's a great question. Um, In essence, it's a large coalition of stakeholders, people who are passionate, uh, people in recovery, community members, science experts, uh, tribal partners. We have MOUs with four tribes in the state of Utah, um, all working together to uh, promote evidence-based solutions to addiction and recovery. Um, And we primarily focus on harm reduction. And we're in season two, I believe now, of Debunked, uh, the podcast. So what is Debunked? Debunked is our podcast where we promote um, all of this science by uh, bringing up myths, uh, myths that we hear uh, every day in the work. People who are in the trenches report hearing some of these remarks from people. And so we take the myth and we bring in people's stories and people share their stories about what they've experienced. um, And we hope to unpack some of the beliefs underlying those myths. And then we also bring in our science experts in order to provide the data to back up those stories and show that some of the things we, we think might be true um, are, are a little more complicated than we thought. So, Don Lyons, uh, this season, uh, what's the general theme? What's, what's this about? I think this season is really dedicated to storytelling. You know, we're, we're all made up of stories, and we're all good storytellers in our own way. And as Sandy was saying, we're looking at D-bit, you know, demystifying these myths that are out there that can promote stereotypes and can continue to cause harm in various communities. So to me, the season's really about storytelling and how we weave in evidence-based practices and really highlight the importance of resilience um, that are in, uh, you know, people struggling with different things. And uh, so to me, it's about storytelling. Let me back up, Don Lyons. Uh, tell me a bit about your background and how you are connected to, uh, or got connected to Debunked. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a long story, but it'll be a quick one here. I try to do it on here. Um, last year, I got invited to kind of co-facilitate the Tribal Opiate Summit. and had a great time. It was a great, well-organized event, and I think the more that we can have conversations, the better. So I, was, I jumped on board 
and from there, I guess the people liked what I had to share and how I facilitated and asked me to uh, co-host Debunked, and I jumped on that, too. I said, yeah, 100%, anything you can do to uh, support uh, communities and, and talk about these issues in a good way, uh, I'm all about that. I, uh, I run um, a national TA center. I do a lot of facilitation and wellness work in Indian country, um, and so I've been doing it the last 15 years. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. I can't resist this question. I, I, I just, you know, Googled uh, debunked, and, and uh, I came up with uh, a Facebook post for last year's um, uh, Uinta Basin Family Wellness Program. Uh, it was part of the 2020 Intertribal Opio- Opioid Wellness Summit. And uh, they mention, uh, Don Lyons, that you did or led some lip yoga. What's that? Oh, yeah. That's a real sacred practice time. We call it uh, res yoga. Uh, it's just something that's it's, it's an icebreaker, it's an energizer. Uh, I do gathering the Native Americans, process the Gona, and a part of that is we have to move our bodies and heal, and if we can laugh together, we can work together. And so uh, we did some lip pointing. You know, if you ever go to Indian country, Tom, and someone's pointing lips at you, you either got to buy them lunch or you're getting married. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that's the, uh, that's the idea that we just want to do something fun and, and do that's the Indian yoga pose, I call it. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that does sound fun. Uh, Sandy Solzer, uh, so some themes uh, this season, I understand, um, homelessness and how that relates to harm reduction. So uh, maybe definitions, first homelessness and then harm reduction. So there are a number of different definitions of homelessness, and in our second episode, um, our audience will hear uh, what in depth how different like state agencies, for example, are defining homelessness. Uh, one definition is that you don't know where you'll be sleeping tonight; you don't have a place that you know you'll be. Um, but there are other definitions, and I think part of what we want to unpack here today is the definition we choose can exclude people. So if you're staying on someone's couch and you know that you're sleeping there tonight, maybe you get excluded from that count. Um, Another way that we measure homelessness is by doing point and time counts, where there's one night a year where volunteers and um, government workers go out and count the number of people um, who are in tents or sleeping on the street and so on, Um, and then they can add that up with the number in the shelter and, and get an estimate of how many people are experiencing homelessness. Um, but there are all kinds of reasons why we might not identify or see a given person on a given day, especially when we just pick one day to do it like that. Um, and so a big part of this season is is hearing people's stories of what homelessness was like for them. Um, and then the second part of your question, what is harm reduction? At its core, harm reduction is about meeting people where they're at. Um, getting one step closer to wellness is still a step closer. There, uh, There's sort of a more old-fashioned approach to addiction where people thought, you know, someone has to not be using at all in order to deserve medical care or access to housing um, or, or treatment. And what we're finding is that harm reduction approaches that take someone uh, who is either unable or unwilling to stop use to move them toward uh, wellness and health without having it be an all-or-nothing equation. Hmm. So, Sandy Solzer, uh, some people uh, say that housing could be used as a harm reduction tool. What, what do you think about that? 
Absolutely. Um, and I, I look forward to hearing uh, Tina's thoughts as well. But one thing, uh, if people are familiar with it, is the housing first model. So the, the evidence shows that once people get stable housing and they have a place where they know they're going to be uh, consistently, that that can be a game changer for getting a job, for um, holding a job, for getting into treatment, for staying into treatment. So the idea that uh, these two are very interconnected, that if we can support housing, we're also supporting uh, harm reduction, I think is right now a lot of this work is handled separately. Different agencies are often working on housing and homelessness um, and, and then trying to collaborate kind of across the aisle with people who are doing mental health and addiction services. And I think a big part of what we hope this season shows is really how intertwined uh, all of this can be. Uh, in anyone's life or anyone's story. Well, let me bring in Christina Groves, uh, therapist with uh, Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake. First of all, uh, Christina Groves, what is the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake? So the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake um, has been located in the city um, since about the mid-70s. Um, it was initially started um, as a community center, Um providing some services, some limited medical care, but also just a, a gathering place for, uh, for Native Americans in the city. Um, you know, the federal government has had uh, policies that have, uh, you know, moved uh, Native Americans off their traditional homelands, um, you know, since first contact. I was listening to a webinar um, to prepare, and one of the comments that kind of struck me was that, um, that moving Native Americans off our reservations um, was the first form of homelessness, and that really, really struck me working with the people as long as I have. Um, currently, the Urban Indian Center offers um, limited medical care. We actually have um, some medical staff on site. Um, we have an outpatient behavioral health program, and we offer family um, and youth services. Um, and COVID has really kind of pushed us to offer our services to our community. So one of the things that we've implemented in the last year is um, COVID testing and uh, vaccination, which um, some of our uh, community events have actually been open to um, anybody in our community, including people who don't have a home. Uh, so um, what do you think of this idea that housing could be used as a harm reduction tool? Yeah, I think, you know, it, interestingly enough, um, I haven't always been a therapist. My first experience with harm reduction was um, when I was in uh, my undergraduate at the University of Utah. I worked at the Community Writing Center, right? So, um, But I had the amazing opportunity to be able to do writing groups with the Harm Reduction Project at the time. And that was really my first kind of um, experience working with the homeless population, with people that were unhoused, um, and specifically Native Americans. And it was a really eye-opening and, um, you know, uh, amazing experience for me. Um, over the time that I've been a therapist at the Urban Indian Center, too, I've, I've worked with people who have been able to move out of homelessness into supportive housing. Um, and I've really seen people be able to... Um, you know, kind of function in their lives where they didn't when they didn't when they were unsheltered. Um, and you know, one of the things that I think I love that idea of um, you know talking about 
putting services together, housing and supportive services, uh, because, you know, just because I think it's important that people have shelter and safety and stability, but that doesn't always address some of the, the issues that they've had, you know, oftentimes for a long time. Um, and it doesn't necessarily tap into the trauma and the healing that needs to happen um, in order to be able to live a healthy life. So I want to jump into uh, the myth that we're debunking today. By the way, we're, we're it's a special live episode of the podcast Debunked uh, here on Access Utah Today. Tom Williams with Sandy Solzer, who's director of the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement at Utah State University. Christina Groves, a therapist at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake. And uh, the podcast host, Don Lyons, are all with us. So I want to start uh, with this with uh, Christina Groves. Uh, so the, the the myth we're debunking: all Native Americans live on reservations. Where, where do you think this this came from? It, it is a kind of a prevalent myth out there. I think there's a, a tendency to think about um, Native Americans as historical um, and not necessarily contemporarily. Um, I think that's changing. You know, over time, I've done presentations. Um, throughout the time that I've been at the Urban Indian Center. And it's become more common that people in the city have grown up uh, knowing someone who's Native American, knowing there's populations of Native Americans here in the city. Um, but I don't, you know, I grew up here in Utah, and I think, you know, our, our education systems definitely don't address contemporary Native Americans and what that actually looks like. Um, you know, the census data kind of shows that although we are, you know, a small portion of the total population, um, that there are populations that live on the reservation and there are large populations that live in the city. Um, and in our agency, um, you know, one of the other things that I think is also a myth is that there are only certain tribes that, that live in an area our agency um, has over 99 different tribal backgrounds represented in the clients that we help. Don Lyons, I want to get your take on this. Uh, where do you think this myth comes from? And uh, what does it do, do you think, if, if we continue with this myth? Yeah, I like what Tina said. I think there's a, the idea that there were static as indigenous people, like we see the history books. And I remember growing up, I went to public school in Detroit, and the only pictures you would see would you know, be the Indian in the breech cloth living in a teepee. But I'm a Anishinaabe and come from the Great Lakes, and we live in wigwams. <laughs> and we didn't dress like that. And so that was the stereotype that was perpetuated in there. And I think the idea that we as indigenous people are static and um, and the idea of these logos, team logos, also play a role into it, that you have to look a certain way. Um, so, and I, I get questions. I work with tribes all over and non uh, native organizations, and there's, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing questions that I get sometimes, Tom, and one of them was, you know, do Indians still live in teepees? You know, is there, um, you know, all these basic questions that I still get working with uh, non-native folks, and sometimes people don't know what they don't know, uh, and sometimes, you know, we have to educate ourselves. So I think this myth uh, plays a big role in understanding that native folks were very diverse, you know, as Tina said, there's over 90 tribes represented. Those tribal nations, uh, sovereign entities in the United States. I grew up in Detroit, and there's at least 60 different tribal nations, and those have different cultural practices, different languages. There's some similarities, of course, but the diversity in Indian country is another thing that I think it's really important to share with the listeners. 
Sandy Sulzer, uh, uh, maybe you could have you respond to something that uh, uh, Christina Groves uh, said, uh, that, that we tend to view uh, Native Americans as historical, right? And it also goes to stereotyping. There are a lot of stereotypes of <laughs> a lot of different groups, and certainly Native Americans, uh, I think we a lot of us tend to, to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think what Don said is, is true as well. You know, we don't always know what we don't know. Um, and I know we're going to have an upcoming episode where we talk about more in depth kind of how, um, white people can work with organizations that are led by native groups and, and how we can facilitate those conversations and, and help them to be more productive. Um, I can say, uh, as, you know, a white, uh, woman in Utah that, you know, moving to the state, I had lived in other parts of the country, but I had no specific familiarity with the tribes um, that I interact with now in any in-depth way. Um, and um, certainly on my, my own team, I've watched as, as we, we all try to learn and grow and, and work, learn how to work together better. But, you know, thinking about my, my childhood education, you know, when I learned about local governments, I don't think we spent any time learning about sovereign governments, right? It was just sort of skipped over in my public school education. Um, and I agree, we did we did visit kind of archaeological sites um, and thought about Native Americans in the context of history and war. Um, but I think that there is a really big gap in, in how we think and talk about these things. And then that gap carries over into our ability to come together around issues like homelessness and around issues like substance use. Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back more on this myth, we're debunking on the, this live episode of the podcast Debunked. We're debunking the myth, all Native Americans live on reservations. And we have with us Sandy Sulzer, Director of the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement at Utah State University. Christina Groves, who is a therapist at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake. And the debunked podcast host, Don Lyons. And we'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and USU's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, enhancing lives through education, discovery, and outreach, and training tomorrow's high school agriculture and technology teachers. Information at caas.usu.edu. This is Science by the Slice. Washing hands with soap and water deters the spread of pathogens, including the virus that causes COVID-19. Soap breaks down each virus particle's fatty membrane, such as dishwashing liquid, cleans greasy pans. When soap and water aren't available, hand sanitizer is the next best tool. USU chemists are making their own sanitizer using World Health Organization formulas, which include ethanol or isopropyl alcohol. They say formulas with methanol should be avoided, as methanol is poisonous if accidentally ingested. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science.
On Access Utah today, by the way, I'm Tom Williams. We are uh, presenting a live episode of the podcast Debunked. Debunked seeks to dispel harmful myths and stereotypes about people who use drugs, persons in recovery, and evidence-based harm reduction efforts. And uh, their mission is to foster understanding and reduce stigma. And Debunked is a project of the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative housed in the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement at Utah State University, uh, College of Education and Human Services, Department of Kinesiology and Health Science, in partnership with USU Extension. We have with us today Sandy Solzer, Director of the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement at USU, Christina Groves, a therapist at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake, and podcast host Don Lyons. And we are debunking the myth, all Native Americans live on reservations. Um, so let me start with uh, Don Lyons with this uh, next question. Uh, so we're, we're talking about maybe where this myth came from. Um, and uh, Christina Groves has told us, you know, there's many, many Native Americans who live in, in urban areas. Uh, so let's go around the panel. And um, Don Lyons, uh, why is this myth harmful? How could it contribute to housing insecurity? Yeah, I think it is definitely harmful. I think for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons it kind of de- it uh, doesn't recognize the humanity of indigenous people. You know, if we if we hold people like you look like you don't look like the Indian in the book, so you're not Indian. And I think that's harmful uh, for folks. You know, it's harmful for young folks to not be empowered by their identity. The other reasons I think is it relates to you know uh, insecurity in housing that. That stuff plays out in systems that we work in. You know, we all have to apply for mortgages. We all have to apply for credit. And those systems are, are reflective of the greater structures that were created over years. And so I think that definitely has an impact um, in, in what we're, you know, what we're trying to do to get, get homes and get security and be recognized as, as full human beings. So I think there's the historical aspect uh, of not recognizing indigenous people as full human beings goes back a long time. You know, there's cowboys and Indians, and you hear people, you know, they got off the reservation. Those little um, words have power, you know, and we're talking about those things. They continue to add layers to uh, levels of historical trauma that we have to be strong enough to be able to work through and find reconciliation and, and walk that uh, that healing road. Um, so I think, I think it's important to understand that, you know, as Indigenous people, we're all over. This land has always been Indigenous, and everywhere you go, it's it's always been indigenous people living on those lands. There's a, a big movement for land recognition, and I've seen that happening a lot in universities. And I really appreciate when people do that. I really appreciate when people speak from the heart and not just the written statements of recognizing so that I think it calls to be inclusive that we recognize people who lived there uh, before us and who continue uh, to be there. And that, that recognize uh, the humanity of indigenous people and the great diversity that we bring. Uh, one other point, and then I'll, and I'll stop talking here, <laughs> is that a lot of the urban centers, is true that ma- the majority of our indigenous population live in urban settings that have a history with uh, relocation policies and the federal policies. But that also should be noted that every uh, urban spot we have now has always been urban. And I'll give you an example in Detroit. Detroit was a uh, central trading spot because it was close to the river. So various different tribal nations were there and had trading posts. This is before the contact, before settlers. 
And so when the settlers saw that, there was already kind of infrastructure. There's trails, there's roads, and a lot of our highways and big roads now are, are, are trading routes. Some of these places that we live have always been indigenous. In a lot of ways, they've always been urban. So we're just, we've always been there. <laughs> we're still here. Christina Groves, what do you think about the, this uh, the, this myth, all Native Americans live on reservations? How, how can that contribute to, or I guess make worse, housing insecurity? Um, I, I just wanted to kind of mention that uh, I really love that point that, that Don just made, that, um, you know, our, our urban settings are were also, you know, gathering places for um, our Native people, too. I think that's important to remember. Um I think that, you know, thinking, again, thinking about, um, you know, Native Americans only living on reservations um, may contribute to that gap in services, um, you know, that we see. I think it also, you know, contributes to um, not personalizing services or making sure that services are culturally relevant and meaningful. Um, you know, a lot of our people leave the reservation to take care of their families, to be able to provide for their families, um, and coming to the city may be foreign for them. And so the ways that they negotiate that and make it feel safe is, is by replicating the community and the relationships that they have on the reservation. Um, and so oftentimes people are staying you know, doubling up with friends and family. Um, it's also not uncommon for Native American families to be relatively large and multi-generational, and traditional shelters do not accommodate that. And so that could also contribute to the reason why people don't go to shelters or seek access uh, in a formalized way um, and are not able to, you know, move forward to um, to be able to have stable housing. Um, I've worked with families that have, you know, five, six, seven children, uh, and most family shelter, well, the family shelter here in Salt Lake doesn't always accommodate uh, being able to have your family all together. One of the other things, too, is that um, indigenous relationships are not always formalized by marriage, although they could be long-standing, stable relationships. And accessing shelter services in, here in the city, if you're not married, uh, or have children, you can't stay together. And that definitely contributes to people not accessing services as well, which leads to them, you know, staying in maybe unsafe places. Sandy Soltzer, um, the the way we define homelessness, right, may may not apply perfectly with the with the way Native American communities are are dealing with housing. Um, and I think the examples Tina gave were right on point. Um, and, and some of these issues, you know, affect anyone, regardless of whether they're Native American or not. Um, you know, shelters, um, there are barriers to, as she said, staying there as a family, with your family, and that's not always possible. Um, and I think anyone can think about being a parent um, and how much they love their kids, um, their partner, uh, the thought of splitting up during what is a time of crisis, you know, uh, not having housing, can be one thing too many. And so I think that, you know, we have a lot of services. Uh, they fill a lot of gaps. Uh, you know, I'm grateful that they exist. Um, but sometimes uh, it seems like the services are created kind of in a one-size-fits-all way. And... Um, there are particular groups, 
like Native Americans that are more often not fitting into that one-size-fits-all. Christina Groves, the, the folks that you work with, interact with, uh, are there difficulties, um, maybe cultural barriers that uh, that prevent or make difficult for people in Native American communities to seek services? Are there better ways we can reach out to these communities for these services? Yeah, I think somebody, uh, I, I think Don mentioned earlier, you know, that there is a responsibility to um, educate ourselves about, you know, maybe some of these uh, situations and uh, and special needs. Um, oftentimes, um, you know, our, our Native people are often, uh, not always, but often um, kind of migratory and kind of travel where the work is or where support is, um, but they don't always have, like, the documents that they need in order to access services. Um, and, you know, amazingly, I think COVID has kind of opened up some of the conversation about this. And so some of the barriers, not just for Native American populations, but other uh, communities of color, have kind of come risen up to the top to be able to understand that, you know, some of the some of the things that uh, seem easy for some communities are much harder to get or access help in certain ways. Um, and I think there is some mistrust in our community that it does take relationship building um, in order for some of our people to be able to understand that, uh, you know, the help that is out there is is really there meant to help them. And so I think it does mean that we have to take a look at how do we individualize or, or um, you know, make services meaningful for different communities uh, as we move forward. One of the other things, too, in getting documents, um, especially if you're moving from state to state over the last year, with different state offices being closed and tribal offices being closed, it was very difficult to get document identifying documents and things like that that you would need in order to access services. You can maybe go to the shelter without any identification, but if you want to move forward in housing, there's definitely documentation that you need. Um, you know, and so I think some of the problems are are might be culturally, but a lot of them are just um, you know our system is not really set up to access help easily sometimes, uh, regardless of what your racial or ethnic identity is. Don Lyons, I'd like to get your perspective on this as well. Uh, services and outreach and maybe cultural barriers? Yeah, 100%. What Gina said is 100% true. I think there's a cultural sensitivity that's really important. There's a layer there. There's this idea of being trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. You know, another way to put it is understanding the, the prevalence of trauma and working with the populations you work with, and understand that there's layers of historical trauma. And uh, we have this saying, you know, work I get to do is not what's not what's wrong, but what happened. And when you can explore what happened, you can have an understanding of the systematic barriers that might be there. It might be easier for other folks because of the um, just the access to different things. But for some communities, it might not be there. And I think understanding the equity of uh, situations is really, really important. And I would agree that COVID... Um, you know, from my perspective, really highlight the inequities in various systems, you know, the access to service, the housing, all kinds of systems that we see that, the inequity there. And there are some uh, cultural, you know, barriers, historical barriers. There's a, I, I really agree with the relationship building, that that's the currency of everything is relationships. And uh, it's important to build trust when you have long years of, uh, of saying, oh, come get the services and 
then you go there and then you need to fill this form out. You need to fill that form out. You didn't do this. You don't have good credit. You can't get it. I think years of that over generations has really kind of jaded people to trust systems, and especially systems coming from governmental entities. Because you also have to understand there's, you know, for a long period, for the majority of the United States history, there was an Indian problem, meaning that the eradication of indigenous people was the primary goal for the land. Um, and, of course, that is not so much the case today, but that history uh, still, that history and that impact over generations still there with communities. And so that's a big hurdle to kind of walk through and understand. And the folks don't have that understanding that are trying to work in services that are social workers, that are coordinators. And they're wondering, why are these folks not coming? You know, I think I would really encourage them to really um, explore the history, explore the historical context of things and and uh, do not look at what's wrong, but what happened. And once you start looking at that, you can understand the context of things. And that might get to, you know, more solutions. Uh, than that. So there are some barriers, but there are good folks out there and want to build partnerships. There's our, you know, a lot of bridge building that's happening. Uh, we just need more of that. And uh, I think that goes a lot to the educational pieces, too, in our schools and, and sharing the true stories and the histories of uh, various people. And uh, that goes a long way. If you just joined us, it's a live episode of the podcast Debunked here on Access Utah. And uh, have uh, with me Sandy Sulzer, Director of the Office of Health, Equity, and Community Engagement at Utah State University. Christina Groves, a therapist at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake. And the podcast host, Don Lyons. And we're debunking the myth, all Native Americans live on reservations. We've been talking here about the implication of that myth for homelessness and services there. After a break, we will uh, jump into uh, talk about implications of this uh, myth for harm reduction services and interventions. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we visit Israel and hear from a new generation of Israeli musicians who share their nation's multicultural roots. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Israel, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The first hundred days of a new presidency are a time for America to reset our national agenda. This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for live national call-in shows Thursday evenings for the first hundred days. How will we all get vaccinated, create jobs, fight racism, and restore our democracy? America, are we ready for the first hundred days? Thursday evenings at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and today on the program, it's a live episode of the podcast Debunked. 
which seeks to dispel harmful myths and stereotypes about people who use drugs, persons in recovery, and evidence-based harm reduction efforts. Today we're debunking the myth Native Americans only live on reservations. Our guests are podcast host Don Lyons, Christina Groves, a therapist at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake, and Sandy Sulzer, Director of the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement at Utah State University. So let me go to you, Sandy Sulzer, first on this question. Um, implications of this myth, all Native Americans live on reservations. Uh, what, how might this affect harm reduction services and interventions? You know, I think um, echoing a little bit what Don said about trauma-informed approaches, I think that there is a real temptation to say that the trauma uh, that Native Native communities have endured is is so far in the past, you know, and we don't, it doesn't really affect us now today. Um, And in our last season, you know, we talked about how boarding schools uh, were still enrolling Native Americans in the 70s, so much more recently than than people realize. And I just want to point out that at the same time that so many of us are busy saying, well, that's so far in the past, how could it possibly affect homelessness now, or how could it possibly affect access to treatment or recovery now? Um, You know, the myth we're debunking today that all Native Americans live on reservations is a myth that people believe, and it's based on history. And so, as much as we uh, are maybe inclined sometimes to think that the trauma and the history is way of the past, we have to also acknowledge that we still believe some of the myths from that history too. And so whether we're talking about um, how the healthcare system is structured and how does Indian health services work and what is covered and what isn't covered um, or the bureaucracy, uh, which has also come up and what Tina was describing, um, these things are kind of, you know, modern, modern artifacts of a really, really long history of keeping uh, Native Americans separate, separate from. And so we've separated out a lot of services. And one of the consequences is that the average healthcare provider in, in Salt Lake City or, or wherever in Utah, you know, is not necessarily trained in any sort of culturally responsive or culturally humble way of delivering services. Um, and so that sort of larger structure of keeping things separate um, trickles down into each person's everyday experience uh, when they try to get help. Christina Groves, I mean, the same question, uh, uh, how does this myth, you know, uh, maybe affect harm reduction services or interventions? And I'll, I'll maybe ask a sub-question first to you. Uh, do Native American populations have a high, higher rates of substance abuse than white populations? So the research shows that Native Americans uh, populations don't necessarily have higher rates of substance use. Um, the last numbers that I looked at looked at um, maybe binge drinking rates were a little bit higher, but uh, but I think we also don't always, you know, as professionals, don't always ask the right questions as well. And so I think there definitely needs to be more um, specific relationships uh, or specific research or education about, you know, 
how to ask those questions. Um, you know, one of the things that we do know is that there's not a lot of uh, research that's done in Native American communities, and partly that has to do with, you know, the historical relationship that we have with people that uh, do research, um, which hasn't always been positive. Uh, I think the other thing that kind of contributes to maybe uh, the bigger problems that Native Americans face when it comes with substance use is access access to resources, access to treatment. Um, you know, I, I'm very lucky that I work in a, a, a substance use program, but we're only an outpatient program. We don't have comprehensive um, care. We don't offer detox. We're, we don't um, offer uh, residential treatment. So, and that's common in other cities and in other uh, tribal communities as well. So not having access to uh, culturally relevant treatment as well um, you know, may contribute to the problem continuing on um, because substance use, in my experience, is really related to trauma um, and relationships and, and a little bit linked to historical trauma as well. When, when your ways of knowing and being are taken away or you're punished for that or imprisoned, um, those, those wounds are really deep and they carry down through generations. It is important to remember, though, that that, you know, historical resilience is also handed down as well. And that's, I think, a reason why, um, you know, Native American people are still here. And I think it's one of the reasons why I know I, in particular, you know, speak out about these things, because I think it's important to remember our resilience and that we do have cultural knowledge that will help us to be able to address the issues in our communities. Don Lyons, I'd be interested in your take, especially on the last point by Christina Groves. Uh, trauma, I guess individual and historical and resilience. Yeah, I think that's a really important um, conversation that we need to have more of is a lot of these, the various funding streams, you know, if you write a grant, it's need statement. So it kind of frames you in a deficit of mindset. You know, what? tell us your worst story so you can get the money type of situation. And really, the reality is that, you know, our teachings as Indigenous people, you know, a lot of a lot of tribes and where I've come from as Anishinaabe, they talk about balance. So if there's historical um, trauma, that means there's historical resilience, too. And what I find what makes things more sustainable and what really can build on is what's working well. You know, what is the historical resilience of our people? How are we still here? And how can we build off those things? And I think... Um, I think my Sandy or Tina idea of the access to services is really critical. And that goes back to a little bit of the funding as well. You know, if we want people to go get services for support for substance abuse, you know, treatment facilities or, you know, getting job placements so they can get um, housing and get their credit uh, situated, having culturally informed and trauma-informed services for people to access is really important. And um, I think that, that ties to goes back to kind of demything, you know, debunking the myth that we're talking about that all American Indians live on reservations. And a part of that is that, you know, in order for us to see the resilience and, and see the full humanity, we have to be part of the fabric of the society, right? Our story is a part of the American story. You know, it just so happens that we were here before anyone else. And I think that's strong resilience in there to know that we have a strong story to share and ways to build off of it. The programs I've seen be really effective around prevention and suicide prevention and 
um, looking at opiates and other substance uh, misuse, is they really look at building off the protective factors. They understand the risk factors, but building off the protective factors, you know, culture, going to powwows, language, uh, ceremonies, getting your name, uh, going rite of passage ceremonies, all these things are really important uh, protective factors that can really help people build a strong foundation uh, to be, you know, really positive change agents in their community and greater communities, too. Sandy Soltzer, uh, are there harm reduction services for indigenous, indigenous or other people who struggle with housing? Are there, is, is it that targeted? There's definitely services, but um, something as specific and narrow as you're talking about is not uh, widely available. Um, I know uh, we've got the the Red Pine Clinic uh, with the Ute Tribe that does offer a range of services, including inpatient um, care, uh, and there is uh, Warrior Spirit run by the Skull Valley Go Shoots that also offers a number of wraparound services. But by and large, um, there's not really a specific track for uh, all of those subcategories of things. And, and I would argue that more importantly than, than sort of saying, well, we need this track for this kind of person in this situation, really we just need all of our services to be better integrated um, and more plentiful. Um, if you do any work in the substance use field in Utah or mental health or suicide prevention, you know, going off of what Don just said, there's a shortage. You know, we don't have enough providers, uh, especially in rural areas. Um, and, of course, that also affects reservations. But even in Salt Lake City, there are wait lists many places. Um, and so we need more services and better integration. And I agree, a focus on resiliency um, can move the conversation away from uh, myths about what is wrong with a person or, or you know, a family or, or whatever, whatever that stereotype is into a place of, wait a minute, look at everything you've been through and how much you've accomplished. Um, I think that's really powerful and we need to keep that at the forefront. I want to turn back to Christina Groves and uh, take it back to housing insecurity uh, among tribal communities. Uh, maybe frame this more positively um, here as we're nearing the end of the conversation. Uh, are there successes you've you've experienced or seen related to housing for Indigenous people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that seeing one of the so I've been at, at my um, at the Urban Indian Center since two thousand eight, um, and oftentimes, uh, you know, historically. Helpers, uh, both in the city and on reservations, don't always stick around. You know, you, mental health and substance use is notoriously underpaid. Um, but I think one of the things that, that has been a benefit of me being there is that over time I've seen clients come in uh, repeatedly. And I've had, you know, clients kind of say, I'm glad that you're still here, right? That when I'm ready to reach out for help, you were still, you were here. And so I've seen people be able to access those, uh, getting housing, getting stable housing, because we were there to help, help hold their hand. We weren't necessarily there to, um, you know, we didn't provide the housing services, but we were there to help 
walk someone through it to help them talk about, you know, what does this paperwork say? What are the documents that you need to do? Do you need me to fax something? So really meeting the client where they're at and really trying to help them out um, as they negotiate that system. I grew up in the city. I feel like that's a piece of my job is to help other people negotiate the different um, often not connected systems, um, you know, that it takes to, to survive in the city. Don Lyons, um, I, I want to maybe here near the end to uh, have you address the idea of stigma. Th- this affects everyone. I, I imagine it would um, it would affect Native American uh, individuals and communities, and and would inform or uh, the services right uh, that uh, that you would give. Um, and that's one of the things the uh, the podcast debunk tries to do, right? To reduce the stigma. Yeah, 100%. And I think stigma goes both ways, you know, for the folks that are trying to access services and the people who provide it, too. There's a stigma or inherent bias, you know, that we have to be aware of uh, when we're providing services and, you know, when we're seeking support, too. You know, one of the things for uh, folks that have been impacted by layers of trauma is the hypervigilance is one of the one of the outcomes, you know. That's one of the coping strategies to survive layers of, of trauma. And we know now by science and what our communities would call blood memory, you know, and, and Western science called epigenetics, that those things are passed down um, in our gener- in, to our generation. And so this idea of hypervigilance, and uh, I think having stigma kind of really amplifies the hypervigilance in our communities. You know, there's a stigma for seeking mental health support, you know, that we should just be healthy or, you know, you know buck up, you know, kind of get over it type of thing. That, those things are still prevalent in um, indigenous communities. Um, and then there's also a stigma of the idea that, you know, those things that happen to Indian people, and I think someone said this on here, that a long time ago they should just get over it. And um, so I think there's there's stigmas and there's myths that we all carry. And I think the uh, debunk, you know, is trying to do a, a way to have storytelling to um, debunk these myths that we carry in order for us to see each other, in order for us to help each other and really, you know, find a, find a better way to support one another and, um, and and move this forward in this conversation and these services and these ideas of a, of a better place together. So I think, yeah, I think stigma um, carries a lot of weight in, in both communities. And um, what I find is we all have our unique stories. You know, we all are made up of stories and, and who we are that really shape us. And um, When we get down to it, we have a lot more in common than we do differences. It's about understanding those commonalities and appreciating and celebrating those diver- those differences is important diversity. We've got to have that, right? No one has a monopoly on the solutions. Um, so I think um, understanding stigma and understanding our biases that we bring into conversations, the work we do is important. Uh, we just have about a minute left. We'll give Sandy Solzer the last word. What, what's, what's, what's the top takeaway you want listeners to take away from this live episode of, of debunk, debunking the myth all Native Americans live on reservations? Um, I hope if you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not Native American, or that's not really about me, or, you know, I'm not personally affected by substance use, you know, I encourage you to continue listening uh, as we move through the season, because as Don said, you know, we have more in common than, than we have different. And also, you know, my observation is increasingly, you know, I don't know any family anymore that is not touched in some way by addiction. And so 
I just invite the listeners to, you know, take that little bit of curiosity that may have been piqued here and bring it forward. And um, as as we move through the season together, you know, see what solutions we can find as a community um, to start filling some of these gaps. Well, we have presented a live episode of the podcast Debunked on Access Utah today, and uh, I've been joined by Sandy Soltzer, Director of the Office of Health, Equity, and Community Engagement at Utah State University. Sandy Soltzer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Christina Groves, uh, who is a therapist uh, at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake, has joined us. Christina Groves, thank you. Ms. Wally, thank you very much. And the podcast host, Don Lyons, has been with us. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Tom, and thanks for the host of the other guests in which. And uh, you can find Debunked wherever you find your podcasts, and you can find it uh, at upr.org as well. Uh, season 1 is uh, there and available for you, and uh, we're moving through Season 2. Now we'll have some more of these live episodes in coming months on Access Utah, and you can uh, find uh, the quote-unquote regular uh, episodes of the podcast as well at those uh, sites. And we thank you for listening today. President Biden had barely taken the oath of office when he was faced with an immigration crisis. Hundreds of families arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border every day. Truth of the matter is, they're coming because of the circumstances in country, in country. We go to the mountains of Guatemala to find out who's coming and why on the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio.